What's up, everybody? Welcome to Mike Dawes Has a Podcast. My name's Mike Dawes, and I do, in fact, have a podcast. Joining me on this journey are the good people at Tonewood Amp. The Tonewood Amp is the amazing guitar gadget that sticks to the back surface of your acoustic guitar and vibrates, reverbs, delays, and other loveliness through the sound hole as if by magic. Because why should electric guitar players have all the fun? To find out more about the Tonewood Amp and to get a very special discount, head to MikeDawesHasAPodcast.com and try one out for yourself. This show is all about guitar, guitarists, and the music industry in general. I'm really excited to catch up with some friends who I've met on the road over the years, and I'm honored to share some conversations with some really exciting guests I'll be meeting for the first time. Be sure to follow all the guests on their socials, as well as Tonewood App and myself, by typing things into the internet. And do remember to leave a review of the podcast so we continue making more. Thanks very much, guys. Let's dive right into it. Mr. Finn, welcome. How are you, my friend? I'm good today. Lovely to see you, man, really. All good, all good. Fantastic. Well, you are in Berlin, Germany, one of my favourite places in the world, in your in your home, even though you have this English accent of, of wonderfulness. You are living over there. Yeah, I'm in Berlin. I'm not in my home. I'm in my studio at the moment. The studio, the morgue? The morgue, yeah, the oven it's called, yeah. Um, it's like um, a classic like Berlin construct, you know, because Berlin, you know has a lot of industrial buildings to play with. Um, I'd imagine. Because it was, you know, it's on a huge river and there's loads of, just loads and loads of places. And so, yeah, I'm in a repurposed like crematorium. It sounds really creepy, but it actually isn't. It's actually really lovely. It's a beautiful old 18th century thing and the walls are like two meters thick and, um, and there's loads of sun and there's windows and it's just, it's just really, really, really pretty. Yeah. This is true. I have, I have been there as well. Yeah. It's wild. Yeah. So for those listening, um, obviously, you know, the glowing introduction that I would have just given Finn has implied that he is a man of the acoustic realm, uh, as as is myself. <laughs> and uh, acoustics are something that uh, that we all do enjoy. And yeah, there's this massive sort of chimney room you showed me, right, where they used to sort of dispose of things. I mean, according I suppose. to the owner, his good friend, Jörg, he's, uh, yeah, apparently, um, I don't remember exactly, but it's something like, Three million people have gone up the chimney, but twenty million people have cried. Jesus, that's it's uh, been here for a lot of a lot of people die over a long period of time. That's that is true. Cruel ironies, and like this is this this place has been here for a long time, but they can't get rid of the chimney. And why would they? Because it's a really good focal point. So if anyone's ever coming to my studio and they're like, "Well, oh, dude, how am I going to know I'm there?" I'm like, "There's a chimney that literally stretches into the sky, and my studio is underneath it." Mag- magnificent place, magnificent place, and good to catch up with you again, man. So, you are a man of well, a man of many sort of sub realms within the musical realm. I would I would describe you as. Have you been playing D and D again? You're totally <laughs> round up to the eyeballs. How could you tell, <laughs> dude? So so for for the benefit of the tape, as they used to say on the bill, uh, the old UK show. I've known you for essentially now according to my parents essentially my my whole existence because there is there is evidence of you present at my first birthday party in portugal yeah absolutely which is which is bizarre and um so finn for the benefit it was a of, hell of a ride, again, man it was a big party you did great <laughs> thanks man yeah hide, hide the photos and the evidence but Back back when I was sort of coming of age, as it were, and discovered music, you were coming out with your first record, right? Um, and I remember this because your mum was 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 playing it to my mum. Which which uh, first uh, record was this? Okay, so your first full length, I believe, which was is that Fresh Project? Okay, okay two thousand. 
Right. So yeah, this, but this, as I mentioned, you do so much stuff. This is before you even re- entered the uh, the sort of guitar-y world. It's because true. You're it's a, DJ, right? right? Well, so yeah. so can, I, can I ask you, why, why, why the switch? Because it's such a crushing record and has all these influences that I can hear of, of uh, well, where I live, Bristol. You've got the total Bristol vibe all over it. The little reggae bits as well in there, uh, I can hear. Um, but but you had this this whole electronic thing going, but then you, you seem to be one of these rare people who's just sort of transitioned into a totally different realm within music and then absolutely crushed it. You know what I mean? It it, it seems such a rare thing to do and, and certainly something that's really inspiring to people, to myself and also people listening, I'd hope, is that just, you know, the music industry is such a vast sort of varied thing with with commitment and dedication, a little bit of spicy talent on top. You know, you really can take all these different areas to different levels. So can I ask, like, what was the genesis of that sort of transition from a, a career which was in the electronic world through to the the acoustic world yeah i mean i i can it's a it's it's um there's this old expression that i learned when i was at university which was like an old wife's expression which was like you can't change a man after 30 and and like that's just total rubbish i mean you know because <laughs> you totally you totally can you can change your career as many times as you like as long as you're willing to like bear the responsibility of, of changing it. And so <clears throat> I was into, uh, I was, I was into electronic music for a long time. It was like my first love in a way, because I grew up in a moment in time that, you know, let's say in 1986, I was 14. And so 14 to 18, 86 to 90, a lot happened, you know, rap happened. I'm just a kid living by the seaside in the West country. So for it to for it to reach the shores of where I was living is it meant meant that you know global culture was washing these influences over from America and and and, and so at the same time I was listening to all this rap music and electro and breakdance stuff and thinking okay this is amazing it's really cool but it's, it's it's not really very relevant to living in in the west of England but then rave culture happened and that very much was like a west of England rave in a field type situation and yeah the music okay hasn't really aged that well psytrance um it, 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 I, I i thought it was amazing at the time that's all i see only way i can justify dude it's 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 still everywhere all around still here a thing. in this town into it because um in a classic teenage way you know my parents weren't my mum and dad are really cool very open-minded people but i don't ex- i don't expect them to understand acid house on first listen and so um, that gives you, as a, as a young man, loads of fuel to think, this is mine. This is my generation's thing. And their generation had like hippie culture and, yeah. and all that stuff that goes with it from Beatles to Hendrix to Stones to Curtis Mayfield to all that, Stevie Wonder and everything. And you're like, so what, what, what have I got? And actually what I had was Aphex Twin, Orbital, Moby and, you know, and electronic music. And so we kind of thought, you know, um, why would you be in a band? Because that's what they did in the fifties. So that was that was considered old old oh, fashioned. Old fashioned. It's like, what are you doing? Why would you need? Why would you like other people? Ugh. Well, in a way, <laughs> DJing is a very fun and collective thing to do. But like, you know, why would you like do something that's already been done to death by 40, 40 years of other people? Like bass, drums, guitar, and vocals. We get it. That's the same format as Elvis, Beatles, you know, like, dude, it was so lame, so old fashioned. And so we lurched really violently to the other side, which was the song is dead. The chorus is dead. 
the band is dead, live music is dead. Uh, the future is, God is a DJ, the future is this. And, and I was so into that, into that <laughs> vanguard of electronica and sampling and technology changes things and it moves you around and it's great. So um, I was really besotted with all of that. So straight, I was signed at college making uh, ambient techno. That, that, that album hopefully will stay buried. But um, And from that experience, I kind of, I loved DJing and, and being a DJ was like, it's hard to imagine, but it was quite an avant-garde lifestyle choice in 94. It wasn't something where you say to your mum and dad, hey, I'm going to be a DJ. And they go, wow, David Guetta's a DJ and he's got worth 100 million. So good luck, son. Yeah, get on that, get on that Las Vegas billboard. Yeah, I mean, get those New Year's Eve parties. Going. It wasn't an option, man. You know, and I think uh, the only guys you could look up to and think that's that's an option was a DJ called Sasha, and then Fatboy Slim, and there were a few like, and there were a few superstar DJs, but like, you know, so you had to do it for the love. There was no um, future in it. Strangely, that kind of taps into something that Lemmy said in his that documentary about his life. Which, you know what? I saw that documentary like two days ago. It's great. Uh, it's on Netflix. Amazing. Yeah. What a what a what a legend. What a living room that guy had. Oh yeah. Um. What the rent control department by the Rainbow, the legendary Rainbow. But you know, he said, you know, when he joined um, Hawkwind, you know, it it wasn't like you were going to be in a rock band and that was a wise career choice and you'd maybe get a mortgage together and save up for a house and it, it was like this is a lifestyle choice with no happy ending. And, yeah, uh, yeah. and you and and, and therefore you're like a lost soul whereas kind of and that's kind of what electronic music felt a bit like it was like no one else understands how amazing this is only us and and we're going to do this and so and, and then through that scene came dj culture and and clubs and and you were touring like worldwide yeah, i was clubbing with, and with touring this? and djing from like 94 to like 2000 i retired in 2003 because it was right, like right. um mm-hmm. Uh, I really enjoyed the arc of clubbing and the, like the heyday of drum and bass and all this amazing stuff. And I signed to Ninja Tune, which was like this kind of um, DJ label, massive part of the scene. And I was a Ninja Tune DJ, so yeah, I was I, was, I traveled all over Europe and DJed everywhere, and it was it was it was really great. And you know, I had a really good time. And you know, this was before mobile phones, before the tax man was looking under your bed, and you know, I had boxes full of cash and house of records and i was literally kind of like this is what life's about real records real physical records that you would have to actually switch out like i had so many records at one point that um i had a whole room in my house in in london that was just vinyl and it was that's amazing floor to ceiling all the way around with my studio that's my my girlfriend's dream room that She's a bit of a collector. Sometimes you'd go on a date with someone and you'd be like, if you're not into music, my apartment's really going to freak you out. Because it's just, the <laughs> living room is just two giant speakers and a turntable. And my bedroom is like basically a bed. And then the other room is basically just records. So you got you got to do what you got to do. It reminds me, there's, there's a guitar tech that I work with here in Bristol. And um, I won't mention his name just because I don't know why. He might not consent to this information. But when you enter his house, it's, it's that man, just old tube amps everywhere, repairs, like 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 the only walking space around the house is a route made of amps and old radios and things that he's taken apart. But that's the passion, that's where it comes from. So clearly, you know, you got the passion, you got the bug. I loved it. And and you know, my first album that you talked about, Fresh Produce, it was all based on samples. Yeah. Which is why it's not on Spotify. Um, we had to pull it down. 
it, it might break your heart to, to tell you this, but I, I managed to find a couple of tracks from it lurking on Spotify. There are, there's a few singles out. There's a few right, singles right, that, okay. we, that are up there, but um, only because in the heyday of sampling, they hadn't actually, the, you know, the, let's just say that the, 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 the legal ramifications of it hadn't actually caught up with the culture. And yeah. I think in a way, sample culture and electronic music was like very much ahead of the curve. And, and, and so when you're running in front of things, people are kind of running behind you and saying, well, that's not allowed. And by then you've already done it. Now Eventually the, they caught up and said, actually, you know what? You can't take that Miles Davis sample because it's owned by Miles Davis. And you go, what? But you kind of knew that all along. But, um, and, and, you know, the thing is growing up in Bristol, it meant that I was growing up in this great vinyl culture, DJ culture place. I mean, Bristol's amazing. It's given us like, you know, I remember seeing Tricky in a club wearing a sarong at the Thetcler. I remember seeing the Mass Attack boys and thinking, you know, they were driving around in a Volvo. And I'm thinking, man, they've got a car, you know, they're like Fantastic. life right now. And um, uh, you know, Smith and Mighty had a stall at the at, um, Corn Street Market, you know, where they'd sell like uh, rave wear, you know, and and and, uh, and Port's Head emerged from this scene and yep. you know, Ronnie Size and... And man, it was just such a great place to come from, you know. It's, and so every weekend we'd go clubbing is when we were at school and just be like, oh man, listen to... Because Bristol's quite small and, and, and very, very cool, it, it it can take the good stuff from London and leave the stuff it doesn't want. So at least that was the case then. So it was kind of like we would... You'd go to a club and, and um, the DJ would play. You'd get a bit of techno, you'd get a bit of acid, you'd get a bit of funk, some rare groove, some sort of side jazz... Uh, some reggae a lot of reggae and um so you kind of got all these amazing influences kind of flowing in on you and um and so i think that's where the bristol sound comes from and there's a lot of that on my my electronic record you can totally hear it and i mean that that sound every time i mean now just going out during lockdown here well not during lockdown during covid going out and about that that music and that vibe just permeates the city still to this day it's a really sort of proud part of its its heritage really and and like massive attack you know pre covid uh, i think it was was it like christmas or new years or something just gone they did like two or three nights at like an aircraft hangar nearby you know they are <laughs> huge and i was in a babysitter in bristol was booked for those gigs it, that's the thing man like i was in an, an uber or no sorry a taxi one of bristol's blue taxis uh with with my girlfriend and the the streets were just deserted and all all the taxi drivers were just going to or to and uh, from this this kind of farm hangar situation with mud all over their their cabs you know dude i remember my mum and dad when i was in college they said um Oh, you know, we've got like, uh, we've got, um, we're on the guest list to go to a, go to a gig. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. What is it? And they're like, well, it's Mass Attack supported by Porter's Head in the Thecla. In the Thecla? Like the coolest gig on the planet ever. And they're like, yeah, we're probably not going to go. I mean, that's the great thing about, it. I love Bristol. I, I, I absolutely adore it. And there's a lot of my, a lot of my, um, sound is the Bristol sound because of this linear hypnotic, like almost like uh, like dubstep, for example, is a perfect genre of music for Bristol. It's dub, it's electronic, it's forward, it's backwards. It's like this lovely, beautiful lifestyle choice type overview of music. And right. Bristol meant a, a lot to me and gave me all my musical like uh, open-mindedness because there wasn't enough people to generate a scene just for that niche. Whereas if you're from London, there's going to be a thousand, there's going to be 500 people that all like that specific branch of music and you go to your club every week. But in Bristol, there's only a hundred. That's really interesting. So that's part of the reason perhaps you could say that that sound 
kind of permeated the the couple of upcoming new Fink records where you kind of rebranded yourself as a singer-songwriter because, you know, that first record you have, Biscuits, there's a lot of that kind of, there's even a little bit of beatboxing. There, there. is, stop you it, know, stop you know? it. No, it's great, but it's it's that vibe, and and you know uh, that that record when that a bit ca- of beatboxing in it, I can I know I know, but people change. It's okay, dude. Dude, it's a, it's a great record, and, and that that transition. I mean, when did you realize you could sing, man? I well, mean, I your voice up, I, I, on, that on that stuff. I grew up um, listening to a lot of a lot of um, a lot of music that involves singing, I suppose, and so and one of the things that I really liked was. Um, um, the new soul movement, people like Erica Badu and D'Angelo and Jill Scott and these kind of people. And, um, and, um, and previously to them, my parents' record collection had things like Stevie Wonder and Chuck Berry and, and stuff like that. So I had this comp, this weird combination of the fact that some people can sing amazingly well, Stevie Wonder. Some people, it doesn't actually matter. They're still, they're just as amazing, Jimi Hendrix. And some people are like, oh, my God, unbelievably naturally talented. They redefine modern music, Chuck Berry. And some people are just like just doing it. And what they're doing is amazing, Bob Dylan. So you kind of get this weird combination of like, you don't need to be a singer to be a singer. Yeah, it's this is this is not the the X Factor American Idol generation where you know the the the, the singing community, uh, at least the younger people, might have been convinced that you have to be this sort of Beyonce singing the national anthem kind of technician to convey a message. You know, true. I mean, you know, um, the 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 point is that this like Foxy Lady is not about how good Jimi Hendrix can sing, um, exactly. and and but he does sing, and and it is amazing. But it's not it's not that he's a virtuosic singer. And I, I, don't, I don't know. I sung in the shower a little bit, and then I and then I was um, and I was DJing a lot. You kind of sing along to stuff. Um, but then when I was trying to transition from the DJ guy to be a producer, because I thought I'm kind of over DJing. I'm maybe a bit old now, like 31, and like that was before there was options like, oh, it looks like you can DJ till you're 60. Well, you kind of couldn't. You just got to keep a six pack and be good well, on you know, Instagram. Yeah, you just you can do kind it. of just keep getting work done until, you know. <laughs> uh, um, and um, I was trying to transition out of being the DJ guy and into being the producer guy. I was getting inspired by people like Zero Seven and Groove Armada and Air and all these people that kind of had the same skill set as us DJs, but they had singers. So they were like huge, you know. And so yeah. we're like, okay, I can do the beats. I just need... Uh, someone to sing the song ah the irony because it's like i thought the song was dead and i've just spent 10 years being like anti all this and it turns out i needed to work with a few singers because i wanted to explore that and in that process i had to sing a few demos to get them to sing a few things for me and in that process i discovered that they didn't know it was me singing the label the 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 people i was sending the demos to oh wow so i'm like so the girl one of the girls i worked with in the early days she was like, who's this guy singing this song? You should just get him to sing this one. I'll do another one. And I'm like, yeah, no, 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 that's me. So, you know, and she was like, well, you should do it then. And it just raised that kind of question of like, well, if you didn't even know it was me, that means I can maybe do it without it, people knowing that it's me. Right. And did and did that feedback coming from a singer that you clearly respected enough to want on your track, did that feedback, that honest feedback help with that decision you know would that have been better than say i don't know your mum and dad saying hey that sounds great you know (laughs) yeah absolutely i mean you know your mum thinks you're amazing at everything you know and 
love that. But um, (laughs) um, yeah, it meant a lot because I thought, okay, well then maybe I can. And then at this point uh, there'd been um, this D'Angelo album Voodoo had come out in 99 or 2000. And it was like a real template for everything we all wanted to make. Obviously he's one of the most talented artists of the 20th century. And so you can't quite step up to that talent, but it's like, I've got a microphone and I've got a guitar and I tried for years to make a acoustic guitar. I have to shift around to avoid the sun. By the end of this interview, I'll be sat like over here. Um, <laughs> it's all good. Uh, um, yeah. By the end of, by the end of trying to record my, I've got a microphone and I can record my voice and I tried to put acoustic guitar in with beats for years. You know, the transition was really messy because it's rubbish. You know I mean? Putting acoustic guitar with kind of loungy beats, it sounds as bad as it sounds. It's, <clears throat> it just sounds like really mild spa music. Well, it, there's a sweet spot that you've managed to hit with that, I think. Well, I've got a band now, so it sounds like I'm in a band. That's different. If a producer's putting mild beats and he's got a little acoustic guitar riff over the top. Sounds like you're outside a bar on uh, South Beach. Sounds like some Buddha bar nightmare. So... And, that's, and I couldn't get it to stick. And then, the, and then the truth is I worked with a few amazing singers, one of them, Amy Winehouse, when she was very young. And I realized that I can do this beat and play guitar on this beat. And if, you, if Amy sings the song, it's like, oh, my God, that's, that's killer. That is a killer yeah. track now. And with legs and doors swing open. And it's like, oh, maybe the song isn't dead. And then I poured myself into the song. Cause I was way behind, you know, I was years behind. And so I went to every gig I could go to. I was lucky enough to be working for re- uh, major labels at the time in Soho. So I could actually go to every showcase, every gig, every guest list. I went every night I'd go to a gig. Okay. So you were working there not as an artist, but as a way. As a plugger. And then I'm a, I was a, I started in the garage, um, fulfilling drinks orders for for the for the conference rooms, and I worked. I, I did work my way up to like marketing manager. That's the uh, the golden tale, isn't it? That's the 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 the, the dream. That's that's the, that's it's the way they say it's done. done. You know what? I just was the wrong sex and the wrong age, and the, you know I, I I had you know I just was the wrong body type for my career to be quicker <laughs> in that environment. So I had to actually graft my way up and. Um, and I did, and it was great because I got to learn everything. I got to learn all the different areas of the that's music right. business and where there is happiness, where there is joy, where there is pain, where there is like where there is darkness. And so I could navigate and kind of go, where is it good? And eventually I came out with the answer of actually the guy on the stage seems to have the best job in this game. Um And although being the DJ, I was the guy on the stage, it was a lot of pressure to be a DJ and I wasn't really reacting to it very well. The whole, um, you get on a flight to Budapest on a Friday with a box of records because that's all you've got is a box of records at that point. And like, what if they don't like what's in my box? Then that's going to suck. And sometimes it did. Other times they'd be like, they'd go batshit crazy for everything in your box. You'd be like, well, I'm a god. But on the nights where you play everything in your box and everyone's like, well, we kind of wanted to hear some drum and bass. You're like, I didn't bring any. Yeah, can't go and download any. No, you're complete. There's no USB keys in this mix now. So I don't know. You know, obviously I was an Intertune DJ, so they knew what they were going to get. They were going to get scratching and cutting and, 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 yeah. and turntablism. But um, 
I didn't like the pressure very much. And so, yeah, I, I, my transition was long and painful and difficult, but eventually I found my, I found my voice and I, I know I'm quite lucky. It's not necessarily like, um, I taught myself to sing and I taught myself to play guitar and then I taught myself to write a song and then I taught myself to record it. And then I taught myself to produce, you know, I did all of those things. Absolutely. But, and it took ages. Um, but, um, I also have this like kind of, I love music, which is really intense so that my gig was kind of like, how can I make it intense? And I think I tried and tried and tried for a lot, a lot of my records. And I only really dialed into this around about album four. And right. the key to me was like, oh, you just got to forget whether or not there's any future, whether it's going to get radio. Like the minute I stopped caring about radio, I got it. So, so, so for, for just to be clear, album four would be, are you including fresh produce in that? Or are you talking, so you're talking, so let me get my Fink discography right. So you've got biscuits for breakfast, yeah. distance, yeah. distance of time. Underrated classic. And then, well, we'll come back to that in a second, actually. And uh, then perfect darkness. Uh, no, then sort of revolution. Sort of revolution, then perfect darkness. Bro underrated, right, okay. you forgot. And then perfect darkness. So by album four, I was right. like, okay, you know what? I'm not, no one's throwing any Grammys at me at this point. So it's not about that. But, but I just must interrupt you and go back a little bit to distance because, you know, part of an, an, one of the strings to your bow, uh, which, which I mentioned earlier at the start of the show, you do all this stuff, is the fact that there are a lot more people watching this or listening to this will have heard your music, guaranteed, than they might think have heard your music. Because your music, 100%, because any TV show in the world, man, you've been on, any advert that I've seen, you've, you pop up all over the all over the place, man, because your stuff gets synced all over the shop. And, and I say that, obviously, you know, lots of people get synced and all this stuff, but that distance and time record, um, this is the thing, right? Yeah, this um, is the um, thing was the first big movie sync we got and we needed it because right. we were so broke at that point. It, was, it wasn't even funny. So what was the process there? Did you did you learn and sort of acquire these contacts and, and knowledge through working at the label and working your way up and working that side and of nothing things? Nothing to do with me. It comes from your label. Well, it comes from right. your publishing company. You know, they, 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 you, your, your publishing company um, uh, is, is w w one of the things that they do, apart from just kind of administrate what you do and license and, and make sure everything, you know, it's all on, you know, Gemma or whatever, PRS or whatever. They're not only they do all that stuff, but they own, you know, they own it so they can make money out of it. That's, that's great. So when, if they get, if they get you a movie sync and they're going to get to pocket half the cash, then they're going to go out and find those sinks for you. Everyone's a winner. Yeah. Well, yeah, they, they win particularly hard. So the good thing is if you have a good publishing company, they're all about that. And it used to be the case that it was all about TV ads, but it, it quickly became not the case. Because the TV ad companies, that's the sharp end of the stick. They're, they have their own guys to make the music. So they'll be like, we really want, um, you know, um, this Cat Stevens record. But obviously, we're not going to pay a quarter of a million euros to have a Cat Stevens record on our yoga advert. So what we're going to do is you're going to go over there and for two grand, you're going to do us a copy of that Cat Stevens record. I had a, I, I've had a few gigs just like that. Yeah, me too. I'm not. I'm not embarrassed yeah. to admit that when I've been really down on my luck, I've done a yoga advert. But and they did <laughs> want cats. Then they wanted naked and famous, and we kind of did a kind of naked and famous alike. Right on. Okay. But luckily, I knew the producer of the original track, and I was like, 
dude, I've got this gig. I've got like, it's rubbish, but I need to know, how did you get that drum sound? And what's that synth you used? And oh yeah, what, what, what was that microphone you used for the... But um, th- yeah, they do it, and, and we needed it because you know the the record label. When you start, they they invest a lot of money in you. Even even at the lower end where we were with Ninja Tune, just uh, tour support, they uh, you know we were like twenty thirty grand deep in the hole on tour support to launch the first record. Just helping us, you know, if if we do a support tour and we're on tour for three months, and the fee for every gig is a hundred euros, and every gig costs us five hundred euros to do, the label will cover it but you owe them. So we needed a license and we got one with, um, on this is the thing, we got a license for um, uh, British Airways. No, MasterCard. That's where I saw That's it. That's the thing. So MasterCard yeah, are doing yeah. the whole kind of like, hey man, don't worry about paying it back. Just live your life. <laughs> Have a MasterCard and go on holiday. So they gave don't some kids some MasterCards and just went, Go around the world with a film crew and film yourself having a great time on a credit card. Don't don't look too deeply into this. Just do it. And then this is the thing was over the top. Yeah. And uh, and they also did a deal with BA to, that said that Mastercard was sponsoring BA's film thing on the plane. So every time the BA thing kind of launched that uh, when you took off, it would be like my song, and then there'd be like you know Mastercard, you know travel. That's awesome. I mean, looking back on that deal now, it was shocking, but um, it, it was just an, just enough money that we needed just to just to dig us out of a hole. And then once once that began, then we got a movie, then we got a couple of TV shows. And which which movie which movie for that track? Um, we got a movie called it was a war thing. Dear John, it was called. Right. Okay. Um, and it's about. Um, you know, a soldier, and then he's he's out, he's in Iraq or something, and then he gets a letter from his wife saying, you know, it's over, and then this is the thing starts playing, and you're just kind of like, you know, the emotion, the human cast of war. Ride of the Valkyries into this is the thing. Yeah. Well, hello there, everyone. Apologies for the interruption to the podcast, but I did want to tell you about the amazing Tonewood Amp, the awesome sponsors of the show. Many of you will know already that I use this thing all the time, the magical little device that sticks with magnets to the back of your acoustic guitar, vibrates the back surface of the instrument so that reverb, delay, chorus, Leslie speaker effects, and other loveliness project out of the sound hole as if by magic. You're a wizard. I'm a what? You can head to MikeDawesHasAPodcast.com now to get more information about the Tonewood amp as well as saving a tasty percentage for yourself. Let's get right back to it. Um, so syncs have been really like, in, in a way, in a weird way, syncs have acted like radio for us in the States. Don't right. do radio singles. Not that we haven't tried or wouldn't mind, but... Um, it's expensive. It's, ex- it's an expensive exercise to get into that. I just don't make that kind of music. It just doesn't you know nor do the bands that i really love you know radiohead don't get a lot of daytime radio play either you know it's like i just don't make that kind of music so but to do an american tour if you want to sell a thousand tickets in denver you kind of how are they going to know who you are and and we've been really lucky because with syncs we've discovered that it's instead of getting radio they might have seen us on walking dead or house md or and shazammed it and that's the people that come to so that's so that's really interesting. So you're seeing a, a definite and, and decent amount of people discovering, like seeking you out after hearing a track on one of these TV shows. Sure, you see the Shazam bump when it you gets bump, when it yeah. gets aired, yeah. And also when you when you 
when you do book a gig in like Minneapolis or something, you are kind of like, how do you know who I am? I understand, you know, blogs and, and word of mouth and, but how honest. And this is, this is at a time that's presumably pre YouTube. No, this is right now. (laughs) No, even now. It's still, it's still a thing. It's like, you know, LA, we got it. New York, we got it. The major cities, we got it in the normal route. We've done the gigs. We've put out the records. We've done the promo. We, 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 you know, and stuff happens. But then the, you, in, the drive from New York to LA is quite a long way. And it would be nice if you could play some gigs along the way. So you have to play some out of the way places. And, you know, it's kind of like, how, how the hell did you know who I was? And most of the time, when you play your set, when you hit the sync monster... You'll be like, that's why. They're all Walking Dead fans. Precisely. If I go into Warm Shadow in Dallas and everyone goes, ah, oh, it's amazing. I'm like, Walking Dead. Or if yeah. I go into Yesterday Was hard, hard on All of Us in Atlanta, I'm going to be like, Selma. Or I kind of know where the biggies lie. And, and, and you know, I'm, I love it because, you know, I love, I love like, I love the movies and films and TV shows and, and I watch them myself. In fact, when we got the Walking Dead, when we got the Better Call Saul sync for my blues records, I was such a, such a huge fan of the show that they send you a synopsis of the scene in case you're not okay with it. Oh, wow. You know, to approve it or not approve it. You know, like yeah. if it was a scene like, you know, uh, something, something that I wasn't horrific. into, then, then I, w- I could say, I, I don't want this thing to happen. And so with, with Better Call Saul, I was just kind of like, you cannot tell me what happens because then I'm going to know in five episodes time what happens. <laughs> so they, they had to redact it for me. So it was like Nacho, blank, 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 tied to a chair, blank, blank, blank. And I'm like, I'm in, I'm done, I'm in. And then so you're like, okay, there's going to be a point in, in this episode where Nacho. There's a chair. There's a chair involved. <laughs> And then, and then it is, and you're like, oh my, you know, same with Walking Dead. When I got the Walking Dead license for Warm Shadow, they were just kind of like, uh, do you want to know, uh, like the scene? And I'm just kind of like, no, 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 no. I want to get there like all the fans do. Well, I got there how all the fans do. I didn't know you had a, had a sync on that. And that was, um, I think that might've been the last season of the show I actually saw. That's when they're kind of storming the prison, right? Or there's something... Was it the bad guys are sort of coming in? They're they're getting ready for a fight of some kind. Bad, I mean, it's been a while since I was in. It, it's been a while since I was in The Walking Dead, but I think it was like the Colonel who was the bad guy in that season, and Rick had a meeting, and it was yeah. and and the whole show was just this meeting between Rick and the Colonel, and Warm Shadow as a sink was played from ad break to ad break the whole time through that whole eleven minutes, and wow. um. And I, I was in LA, I was in America at the time. And so I was living there at the time with Samar. And um, so we watched it live on TV and it was a rush, man, you know, because these things are very abstract. You know, I don't have a TV to be perfectly honest. So I don't like watch TV, but. But it's special. We you know, know it's To special. be in America watching Walking Dead, your track comes on and then just to see, you know, your socials start lighting up all over the place and your numbers start accelerating. Yeah. And it was like, oh my God, this is like a genuinely real thing. That's so cool, and that and it still is. But at the time, The Walking Dead was one of the biggest shows on television, hands down. I mean, it kind of still is. But but th- those seasons, those first few seasons, especially, it was just insane. Uh, certainly amongst my kind of circles, you know, the misery of it has kind of maybe bumped a lot of us off the gig because it's like so relentlessly miserable, 
and there is no happy ending. If, if they would just dangle like, oh, we hear the we hear there's a cure in 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 like Portland, you'd just be like, there's going to be a cure. Everything's going to be fine. Yeah, I'm invested again. I, I mean, oh, I hope they find the cure, and then you just know that it's just going to be like, oh, it's just so relentless. It's so relentless that I just had to stop watching it. Well, congrats on the sync. And I must ask, for the benefit of anyone listening who's, you know, an aspiring musician or someone who wants to get into or doesn't know enough about that side of things, you know, the sync stuff, like um, when you have something like that, a track playing, you know, ad break to ad break, moving around away, getting away from the sun. That's right. Um, when you have something that's 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 for that length of time, does your publisher ne- negotiate a deal where, you know, you're entitled to a higher royalty based on time or is it just a sort of buyout of an individual piece? How, how does that how does that sort of work? Um, it depends is the, is the, is the honest answer to that. If, um, if like Apple are going to launch a new phone on your track, then you can ask for a little bit more money than if you're (laughs) going to be like playing in the bar while Hank and Janine talk about their relationship. So, you know what I mean? If you're on the launch of the iPhone 12, it's like, yeah, you're, you're, you're done. Um, so, and, and if it's like, in movies, yeah, the longer the usage, the more money you get. If you get used for the trailer, you get oh, you get way more money. Every the trailer's the credit should get more money. There's there's loads of layers of of, um, of negotiations happening here, but it's it's a game, you know, because the publishing companies they really want you to get the sync to get some money, and they need to pay their own rent, and the movie companies know this. But then the directors put your track on his original, on his on his sort of scrub edit, and now he's fixated. So nothing will do other than thinks this is the thing in the scene, and so the so then it and then the game begins. Hey, we really want to license this track, but you know there's not much of a budget. Yeah, I know, but that's a big track, so it's one of one of the expensive ones. Well, you can either take the deal or not. Well, maybe we won't. Well, uh, and it's like it's I don't know how yeah. they do it. I don't have the balls for it. I would just say uh, the number of times my manager said. He's, he's amazing. He's so patient. The number of times he said, I don't get sent all the offers, by the way. I only get sent the ones that are real. Because in the early days, you get an email from a, a film company going, hey, we really want to use your track in the trailer for the new Terminator movie. And you think, my life has just changed. I'll order my Lamborghini. I think I'll get the green one with the suicide doors. It's awesome. And then they're like, yeah, we went for um, Cat Stevens. Sorry. And, and then you're like heartbroken because you've just, hope is a very dangerous thing sometimes. And, not, and, and all of a sudden you're like really upset and gutted. And your manager's just kind of like, I don't want to do this with you anymore. So you know what, I'll send it to you when it's like really close, you know. So I only get to see it when it's pretty much, dude, this is on. Are you okay with this money or are you okay with this concept or, or, or whatever the question is, you know. But um Interestingly enough, one of the things I've really learned about publishing, which I can't quite understand, but it's a, it's a real thing. Through some of my friends which have had these kind of sync tracks which never end, the syncing just goes on forever. R- retirement. Well, like Jay Swinscoe's Cinematic Orchestra and his amazing track to build a home by Pat- with Patrick Watson, which is like a sync behemoth. And it's like, sync- if something gets synced, then other sync companies feel it's 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 easier to use than if no one's ever synced it before. So it gets a sync, and then it gets more syncs because people have seen it and heard it and know that it works. And then it gets more syncs because they're like, oh, this one, this one always works. 
and then it just goes on forever. And I, I'm lucky enough to have had a few of those, but it's amazing because they it only takes the one sync to persuade everybody else it's okay to sync it. Sure, you're sure real. It's it's a mystery, but you know they always want a, a really great um, uh, you know uh, music supervisor said to me once that we are always looking for the same track every year. We're looking for, you know, whatever the track is that year, let's say we're looking for, uh, at the moment, they're looking for platonic love, friendship love, track a track about love, but not romantic love. That's fun and is all about friendship. And so Pharrell Williams will write Happy for Happy Feet 2 or something like that, and that's the track, and then they need that 20 times. But it doesn't exist no. 20 times. So, you know, they always want the same track. And I, it, sometimes you can notice this when you're listening to TV ads or TV shows which are current, like made recently, not classic movies. And that is that there'll be that redemption song. Yeah, we made it through the hard times and now everything's okay. Ding, totally, ding, totally. ding, 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 ding. It'll be the same tune, the same. It'll be the same track. They all use the same thing because they need that vibe. Absolutely. And the publishers have categorized this sort of by mood and by, you know, content, lyrical content. And, and, and they have in-house like fans and players, mm. which they've worked out. It's, 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 it's better that way. And also they might um, get, they might buy you, they might work for hire you where they say, do us a piece of music, we'll give you $5,000. And you do them a piece of music and they use it on the show and you go, yeah. And then, but they own it and they own the master. So all the performance royalties from that track, they will get and they'll probably get 10 grand in performance royalties. So they're actually making money by paying you to do the track. It's like a win-win with a little bit of an edge on it, you know, it's like yeah. Well, let's take the take take the money up front or or hope it, you know, is a home run. Well, if they didn't hire you to do the track, you wouldn't get anything. They'll get someone to do it. It's almost kind of like you know, if I come to you and say, "Hey Mike, uh we got a license and it's 20 grand." Cool, huh? You'd be like, "Awesome." But if I said to you, hey, Mike, we got a license and it was 100 grand, but 80 grand of that's been given to like 50% to the publisher, 20% to the management, 40% to the tax man, and you get 20 grand at the end, you'll be like, well, that sucks. So it's better, well, in my yeah. opinion, to just have the first conversation. Hey, Finn, guess what? You got a license, 10 grand. You're like, oh, great. <laughs> Don't tell me that it was originally 50. Yeah, especially now when we're, uh, we ain't touring. That's true. That's true. And, um, uh, uh, you know, I... Yeah, that's very true. We're not talking. How, 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 well, I must ask you a, a, a nerd question. Seeing as a lot of people listening to this are going to definitely be guitar players, Love right? That. So you've got to talk to me about the Martin, your dad's Martin. Sure, I wish it was here. It's at home. It's too, it's too sacred to have out of the house these days. This was the holy grail in the house. This was the do, do not touch. Don't touch it. Don't even look at it. Don't point. So, so was that... So, 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 so what is it? Are, are you, are you got it right as a gift? Yeah, on my 40th on? birthday, my dad gave it to me as a gift. Uh, I played Shepherd's awesome. Bush that night and he came to the gig and he gave me the guitar, which was beautiful. Oh, that's amazing. Um, but it, I had, I had taught it for like five years and battered it into submission and it was practically a worthless piece of wood with a few strings on it at this point. But it's not, that's not the point. But, you know, the point was that, you know, my dad loved that guitar and, and in, my, in our childhood, it was a thing in the house and, and he had to get a loan to, to buy it when he was a young man. And um, even as a family, it was such a big investment that even as a young child, I was aware that this thing cost like real money. 
I even remember where we got where we bought it from, Duxon and Pinker, because it was just in oh wow in, in in the air of our house that this guitar is something so precious that do not this is one of the only things in the house which isn't everybody's. This is actually right. dad's, so don't touch it. D D twenty eight. It's a beautiful D twenty eight, and you know, well, like with acoustic guitars, they're not all good. Oh, even and, and, and certainly even the same, even the production line ones or or, or ones made by small teams, like the, uh, that ten ten off the line in that hour. Maybe one of them was going to be really good, and the nine are going to be bad. And there's no way to explain why. It just isn't. It's like when you get these classic like tellies or classic strats or whatever, and they've been remade to the exact specifications with the dodgy screw that's all bent in the wrong place and the, and the hole that was drilled by accident. And they've, 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 they've done everything. The, the flakes of flakes of skin and the blood and the beard. It's like, I don't know what it is, but some guitars are kind of magic. So I've got, a, I've got a lot of acoustic guitars because I do burn through them pretty hard on tour. And right, okay. the Martin, I had to retire it right at the end of its lifespan to be to continue to take it live would have been irresponsible for me yeah there's one day i was going to open the case and it would have been in bits that's that's going to happen to all of us and and you can always stop that happening by not over touring it like this this brady for example i taught all the early years on it and i retired it a little after it was too late and it's now knackered but i love it but it's 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 trashed and Dad's Martin, it, I was like, oh, I just, I borrowed it off him and then I used it on everything. And it was the main reason why I moved from a nylon guy to a steel guy was my dad lending me his Martin because it was like. Oh, that's interesting. Because those, uh, that, that, yeah, because the, the first, was it the first two records? It was the very nylon. nylon heavy. Yeah, yeah. Really great sound. Yeah, because you, you have this. You know, you're playing on these sort of flamenco style guitars, but but you're playing the blues, just dirty blues, finger picking stuff. You're a dad guy, guy yeah, as well, right? Yeah. And um, the the kind of the nylon comes from the fact that well, um, Uncle Paul he gave me my first nylon. All right, um, a really dead knackered thing. I actually researched its history, and it turns out that it was actually made by someone that had no idea how to make a guitar. It just accidentally works, but and nothing's centered. Everything's off the. The neck is wrong. It weighs a ton. It's like really, but it's got the magic. It's got, it's the got magic some sauce. kind of magic in it. Um, uh, yeah. So um, I played nylon because it was quiet. So in your room at college or in your bedroom in your suburban house, you can play a nylon and no one's going to hear. So you can do, play in private, you know. Whereas a steel, like an acoustic is more of a kind of you're going to hear me do this. I don't want to hear you. I don't want to hear you judging my learning curve. So that's you know that's that's part of the reason that's part of the reason I, I play so quiet you know on on steel string acoustic is just growing up playing it I'm, I was so introverted about the process of learning it and learning these new tunings and these new techniques and it really does belt when you want it to and actually the Kunz guitar that I have just behind me there it's been like my main touring guitar for for a while I, I'm thinking of retiring that from the road as it's well so for hard, the, isn't it? the reasons that you said the style is so epic and like. But you know how much of it is 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 in that? That's the that's the gig, right? When you when you switch to a new guitar, you're like, oh my god, I, I've lost everything. I've I've lost everything. I'm now rubbish again. But it's like because the guitar. Well, you know what? It's yeah, it's it's tricky. I mean, part of the reason I, I really get on with that guitar is because it's very quiet. 
it's a really quiet guitar, so I can play and, and not bother people. It's it's one of the quietest steel string acoustics with sort of a pretty standard body size that I've ever played because a few reasons, slightly smaller sound hole and, and the, the top's a little bit reinforced with the percussion. But yeah, it's, I mean, dude, there's a, a three or four different types of uh, tuning peg on that guitar from brakes and switches on the road. It's it's a bit of a Frankenstein. Dude, it's all like rapid style. You tour like guerrilla style, man. I've seen the pictures. It's just you and a guitar and you're out there. And it's like, man, that guitar's been in some airplane holds where you're like, we've all seen them do it, where they see a guitar, uh, you look out of the plane and they're like loading it up and they're like, oh, look, I'm playing guitar. You know, dude, it's, it's um, neck and you're just like, dude, what, please? But I mean, th- when I got out of planes into the bus, all of a sudden I could take my good stuff out. But before, yeah. when I was flying around everywhere, I have a festival. I have a guitar specifically for that, which is a Martin. It's amazing. It's called the Festi. It's the it's my it's called the Festi because you fly into the Festi, play the gig, and the, and and this guitar is going to be flying EasyJet just like you. So you you don't want your most treasured possession in that hold. You want a guitar which is like never going to break or fall apart, and can be replaced in a heartbeat. Yeah, but now I love it. Tough. Now I really love this guitar. It's really grown on me because it was like the runt of the litter. And now it's like the things we've seen together, you know, you're like, I know it's like when you, when you clean it out and, and there's a, there's a dust ball in the sound hole and you're like, okay, but well that's from China. That's from like Kenya. Like it, it's, it's, it's an amazing thing that the, the whole traveling with the guitar thing. I mean, working with, with Justin and the Moody Blues crew, um, you know, he has so many acoustic guitars on that tour. And there's like 19, I want to say, acoustic guitars on that. And then I fly out with, no, nah, well, I mean, the guy, the, the whole point is he's, yeah, I mean, he's, he's like s- s- 70 million records. You could, you could bring whatever many guitars you want. But, um, it's, you know, he's playing a lot of the guitars as song, songs that he wrote on them, you know, and I think that's what the fans of that tour like. But but I rock up with my mono gig bag and, and, and my Kunsi, and that's that's my that's rig. It. But um, I, I had to... I had to get really good at sort of sweet talking the the stewardesses and stewards on the plane just to let me carry it on. And it's, oh, I hate. I mean, everybody hates people like you. Then, Mike, you know, you, you, you oh get, yeah, you I get on the plane the line. and you paid the luggage, the and then there'll be some long haired layabout with a guitar and a soft case, and you're like, dude. But the thing is with the mono bag is it's even if it does go in the hole, it's very well protected. They just it looks like it's not protected, and that's the key. But with the with the trailer and the tour bus guitars, you know, uh, a lot of these are you know he's got some some monsters in that in that rig. What you know, like classic, like, classic, classic, oh, like dude, sixty-eight sort of Gibson fifties, Gibsons and stuff like I that. I mean, I mean, well, he's got his his iconic electric, which is uh, the red uh, Gibson three three five from like I want to say sixty-six. If T Rope's listening, the guitar tech, he's probably going to kick my ass for not getting the right date. But but you know, uh, you know, old guilds. You know, you've got old guilds, old, really old Taylors, Collings. Um, you know, he's got some McPherson 12 strings, like two or three of them. Those, um, the those guilds are, age you know, really well. It's really weird. And the Taylors. Yeah, he's got this. Um, he plays the a, a big old a big old 12 string for a song called Question, um, which is an old guild. But whenever we rock into like somewhere like Arizona in the height of summer, you know, the crew have to take this all these guitars into the hotels or, or whenever the bus stops, you don't want to leave it in the trailer. You know, acoustic guitars are so susceptible to... To things like that, so there's loads of junk bunks, you know, guitars kind of everywhere on the bus. Well, it's it's to also being nicked, which is like, you know, yeah. I remember there's which a couple happens. of times on tour where, 
the buses had to park up in a maybe a less less than less than safe area for the night and you're just like all it would take is someone to come along and un- uncouple this trailer and that's our gig gone and we've actually had to take shifts standing next to the trailer all night just yeah. to just to make sure nobody nicks all of our gear and the really yeah. precious stuff we used to put on the junk bunks but now it's just kind of like when the bus is full there is no junk bunk so y- you you have to either sleep with it because um Thomas, my dear, my dear friend and collaborator, I think he actually slept with his guitar a few times on the bus. In the same bunk? Yeah, because it's like there's nowhere else to put it and I'm not putting it in the back lounge and I'm not sticking it in the trailer. But um, well, yeah, I mean, these the acoustics, they're a bit like pianos. They, they don't necessarily age well in terms of if you beat them to death, then they're going to be like better for it. Like I think some electric guitars really respond to... 50 years of rocking out and you're like, check this out. It's, it's beautiful. But acoustics, there's a balance to it. I think they require a bit of beating and, but, but they, they also require a bit of love and attention. You know, they are very susceptible, especially when you're playing outdoors, you know, like if it's a really hot day and the sun is beating down onto the stage, then it's going to move around the, the, the tone and the strings. And, if it's a if it's a freezing cold venue and it's been sat in air conditioning for six hours, then it's going to also be a little bit frigid when you pick it up and a bit kind of like you can't just pick me up and do me. You have to like you go <laughs> work me into this gig and you're like, well, we can't. The first track's Pilgrim. We're off now. Let's go. But yeah, and the fingers, you know, it's it's that's a constant thing on tour as well. I was talking to I was talking to someone on Zoom yesterday about you know playing over in like San Juan Capistrano and these venues where there's no AC backstage. I don't know if you've done the Coach House San Juan Capistrano. No, um, it's a uh, it, it's it's nice, man. But the, the backstage is you know no AC in the height of summer. You're in you know uh, South West Coast California, obviously, um, and, and you know the the sweat and the grease and all of that stuff. The top, you know, you, I'm, I'm going in for the percussive stuff, and the top's just like wet. You know, Colombia. I don't know if you've been down to I South America. I've been to Bogota yet, but I'd love to go. Dude, I went to. So I've done this festival two or three times in um, Cartagena, and I went was over in Medellin as I well. Saw your as posts on that, right. man. You had a really deep experience down there, didn't you? Oh, dude, yeah. My, all the artwork for my second album was from one gig uh, there in Cartagena. It was just there was this photographer capturing loads of stuff, but. You know, you're not sleeping. You're you're showering all the time well, because you're in Columbia, you're in, you're so in Columbia and you're not sleeping. Oh shush! Oh shush! Yeah, it's lots of lot lot lots of coffee and jet lag. You know, yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, but but it's just that the guitar gets soaking wet. You know, like uh, you, literally, you know, you hold it up and it's dripping. Just the humidity there. You're gonna rip your calluses because the strings are wet. Your fingers are wet. It's exactly. like you get out of the shower and you play guitar. That's not a good. That's not a good look. And in the in the middle of a gig, especially because sound check, you're like, oh, it's fine. You know, it's a bit cold. I might wear a shirt or something. And then you get out there and the lights are like, Poof, and then you're like, Poof, Dude, it's, sweat. it's, it's, like, it's oh crazy. Oh my god! But for yeah, me I and sweat, you, I sweat like Lee Evans, you know, <laughs> like on stage anyway. For me and you, it's like you posted this thing once that was really, I've never forgotten it, about Edward Scissorhands. And it was like fingerstyle guitarist with full nails is like Wolverine and fingerstyle guitarist with a broken <laughs> nail is like Edward Scissorhands. And it's like, God, I so relate to that so much that because I don't play with a pick. Yeah. I play with a pick on a few tracks now, but like it's all about the nails and like gig nails are really short for me. They're like as short as possible for you to do the gig. Yeah, you got that warmth, that warm tone, and you hit, you hit hard. If you break a nail on a three-week tour or a six-month tour, 
it's going to take weeks to grow back. And you know the level of skill that drip that dips because you've broken that nail. So even on yeah. some really key tours where I've been really paranoid about it, I've, I've worn a glove, you know, like, like a fing a, a fingerless glove. No, not a fingerless glove. It's about protecting the nails. I've worn like these in the trendy Nike gloves or something. Because you know, you're not going to break a nail um, and be aware of it. You're going to reach into your bag to get a phone charger or something. Oh, okay, sure. O- away from the show, you're sure, going to be like, it. "Yeah, how you doing, mate? I'm just going to get this thing crunch." And you're like, "Ah, yeah. you know." And this happened. And then you got to do the rest of the tour with with no nails and. Dude, it's it's a it's a nightmare that's happened to me. I've quite strong nails, but um, a few times there was one time in Chicago where I was playing a show, and you you can feel it when it's or like when there's a little crack, you can feel it happen, and then you're thinking, okay, well, this is going to go, and there's nothing I can do. You've got to add right? that into your RAM on the spot while you're in the mix, which is that finger has cracked now, and so I've got to calculate in the middle of all the other shit I've got to deal with that if I pull too hard on that, it's going to go. But I've often filed my nails on stage. But then you don't know, you know, you don't know the extent of the split. So what happened in Chicago was I was, I was playing and then I went, I was like caught up in the moment. I did the big rock and roll ending. And you know, in like, like American football movies where, you you know, the, the touchdown pass flies and it's slow motion and yeah, I could that happened. I hit it, and I could see in my peripheral vision this fucking fingernail just launching into space, and it it landed in a woman's drink. No jokes, oh. in a woman's drink. So I was down. Uh, it was my index, and I had to go to like a Vietnamese nail salon. You know, some hairy guy on tour asking them for them to give me a one fake nail. Did you know, did yeah, it work? yeah, but it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't work because I play a lot with the uh, with the back of the nail. Right. I'm like I do this a lot of this kind of flailing stuff on the steel really? string, and when they when they have a falsy like that kind of on the it's back, too so, shiny. Well, it's not it's not the shiny; it's that the, the adhesive will start to crack on the string, and then it'll start to catch, and then it'll start to you know, it's pretty about quickly. You know, breaking nails here. It's so awesome. Yeah, the, the amount of time I've talking about nail care with with people who ask it's one of the most common questions in my inbox, like almost really every is. day. There's someone. Yeah, there's someone asking about, you know, how to varnish a nail or glue my first, a pink I had my first ever pedicure last week. Uh, the wife <laughs> was having a really tough day and she was like, right, and if I don't get a mani-pedi right now, I'm going to lose my shit. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to come with you and I'll get, and I'll get my Why feet not? done. Okay. And then someone was like, do you want him to do your hand? And I'm like, you can't, can't, mate. he hasn't got any idea how I do this. Each nail is slightly different and I'm, I'm recording it's this French thing tomorrow, so I need more of this than that and do 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 it's a whole thing. But you know, the, the, the weird thing is that um, if I've on the tours where I've broken a nail, it's often because you're too aggressive. And so when you're rehearsing, you're like rehearsing in this comfort zone and everything sounds amazeballs. And then when you get on stage and you're like trying to like, maybe you're trying to lift a gig a little bit too much or oh, you're yeah. trying to push the sound out, you're trying to impress maybe too much. The sound as well, the monitoring. You know, if you're, if you're uh, like collaborating, so you... You work with this band, um, uh, which has grown. You know, it started as a three-piece. The last time I saw you, you had two drums. Yes. You know, it's it's grown. But when you're when you're doing the solo thing, or when you're used to doing the solo thing, but you know, the last tour I did, for example, I was playing. It was a four-piece show, so four guitar players. There was myself. There was there was another sort of relatively gentle uh, fingerstyle guitar guy from Hawaii who plays with Weird Al Yankovic, actually. But but his stuff was very gentle. But then we had a um, 
uh, Turkish fretless guitar guy just like pounding it and then this Finnish gypsy jazz guy and when we're all playing together you've got to kind of step up with it's like uh, when I played with Tommy Emmanuel the first thing he ever said to me uh, the first show we did together was, was it, if you're crowd. gonna die clown no it was like yeah good luck and he was standing at the side of the stage no he just goes if you want a big crowd you've got to have a big sound oh, I like that I <laughs> like that, that. Was a- the wisdom and, and and so you know you gotta you gotta give it all not just from the pickups but you do have to put some energy into it and when you're when you're trying to compete with bad monitoring with other people or whatever that's when the breaks happen for sure so I always try and put trust into the sound man you know you you one of the things that maybe you know we've all been to those gigs where the band or the guy or the girl on stage is really bitching about how it sounds really awful we've all been there we've all seen that and yeah it's to get out of that green element. You just have to remember always that it doesn't sound like that out front. It yeah. just doesn't. So you might be, you might be bleating through some crappy monitor, and to you, it's the worst sound you've ever had. But out front, it's crystal clean and really nice. And it's not always the sound guy's fault. Them. It's it's just yeah. it just is how it is. And just have faith that it's not so bad out front. You know, and never That's never thing, bitch man. about it on stage. Nobody cares. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I've never done a gig where I've seen anyone complain about the sound on stage, but I know it, it does happen, of course. But that's the thing, man. It, it, it's just one more thing to have in your head when you're trying to do a show, first of all, which is completely pointless to do that to yourself. But also, a show isn't about a show isn't necessarily about these individual elements, like you know what you say on stage, or or, or even if it sounds eighty percent of what it did the night before. The show is about creating a sick atmosphere for the audience, and if part of that is is being comfortable in your own skin, that you know, no one likes to see someone on stage being awkward. Well, it depends. You know? I mean, you know? if I go see Big Thief and 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 uh, Adrian is all kind of a bit geeky and a bit awkward, I'll be like, good. I don't want it to come out going, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, welcome to my show. I'm going to do some intimate folk for you now. Um, I think it's a balance. I think I think everybody gets to learn this. After 500 gigs, you've learned a lot. And one gig is worth 10 rehearsals. And that's the leap. It's getting out of the rehearsal room onto the stage. And there's a massive difference. And anyone that's done that leap knows it. So you know that your bedroom rehearsal or your studio rehearsal or even your rehearsal room rehearsal is just to get your muscles working. None of it counts. The moment you hit that stage, everything's different. And you'll learn everything you need to know on that first gig of that tour. Okay, got it. That ending sucks. Why didn't I know that in the rehearsal room? That, that intro is amazing. Oh my God, I had no idea. You learn everything. And like when you, when you, um, hit, when you hit the stage, some gigs are going to be just, I'm here doing this. How cool is that? Here we go. And then some gigs are going to be like, wow, you guys are really into the technical shit. Okay, I'm going to like really make an effort to make these licks really clean and these. I'm going to do some little tricks so that everybody's into that mix. But it's like a balance, you know, like um, I learned something early on in my career, which is which was the fact that um, no one's coming to my gigs to see me play guitar. You know, they're actually right. coming because I'm a singer. Yeah. So yeah. you're not oh, a guitarist who sings, you're a singer who plays guitar. So, you know, get the singing bit right. And then worry about the guitar bit, right? Because I was paranoid about playing inch perfect and getting the whole gig to be like exactly as it was on the record and all moody about if someone made a mistake and things like that. And I'd like, send them a look. Well, that that is that is kind of what I'm referring to. So being someone who plays largely just standing on stage playing instrumental guitar, 
people are interested in the guitar, right? That's the primary thing. But the mentality of focusing on the note perfect performance, even though I do make every effort to do that, the 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 fun you have on stage shouldn't be diluted by sweating about that as much. I mean, obviously, don't just piss out a, a punky version of what you're doing when people are there to see you play. But there is this there is this approach of you know what? Um, Don Ross is a great example. So he's a great guitar player, a friend of mine from Canada, one of the kind of founding fathers of the kind of style I operate in, right? Um, and I've seen him play, and 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 occasionally he would he would maybe make a little mistake or a little clam, but he wouldn't miss a beat, and he'd just go, "Oh, gross!" Like as a joke, you know, just during the show, and the audience are with him, you know, the audience are laughing along, and or just like, "Oh yeah, tell me," you like. <laughs> you know and that's fun for people it's entertaining and it's but more importantly when you're touring you know this pre-covid world which we you know are losing uh, losing uh, the memories of a little bit as we go on but you know the 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 approach has to be you know have fun yourself because if you're not having fun doing it then why are you doing it why are you trying to be on stage and have people come and spend their time and their money to see you if 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 they're not going to be uh, seeing someone who's having fun themselves. Well, again, it's know? a balance, isn't it? You know, yeah. I've seen some yeah. shows where, you know, the mid, the mid, the, you know, the in-between track banter is all about entertainment and jokes and laughs. And maybe I'm not there to have a laugh. Maybe I'm there to listen to you sing your ballads about yearning and loss, and I don't need a gag between every track. In fact, I'd rather you just shut up and play the music, to be honest. And then other shows you'll have an entertainer and you'll just be like, oh, I felt really entertained. Wow, you got, you got that magic source. Some people are entertainers and some people are musicians and some people are both. Um, but I guess if you're there as a musician, you make sure the music is, is, is on point first and then entertain second. And like, I have to remember to myself that I'm not an entertainer. I'm a musician. And people who come to my shows, I don't think they're coming to my shows to be entertained by me. They're coming to hear my music. And if I'm in a really good mood and I want to like chat away on occasion, then I will. But not, I won't like try and get a bunch of gags together. So in between each track, I'll hit them with a few punchlines, you know. Because I think, again, it's like a balance, you know. Some shows are just who you you are, and it's what you do. It's it's self expression and also your 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 own mood at the time as well. True, you, you're going to lose that honest expression if you're just repeating yourself. You know, yeah. I mean, it also it, it, sometimes you don't need the information. Like, if an artist hits the stage and says, "Oh my god, I'm so knackered. I woke up in Paris last night, and here I am already on stage for you guys. God, I'm exhausted." You're a bit like, "Oh, cost me a fortune <laughs> to come here tonight. Your tickets were forty euros a, a pop, and I'm like, dude, and you're knackered. You know, you maybe don't tell them that." Maybe just be- exactly. Hey guys, what's up? I'm in a kind of chilled mood tonight. Let's have a really nice evening. You're like, okay, cool. I'm that. I'm, I'm in. Oh yeah, there's definitely such a thing as too much information. Can be sure. TMI. Well, talking about touring, um, you recently did a solo acoustic thing as opposed to the band. I stuff. did. I did an uh, American the, solo acoustic what, tour. It was wicked. Loved it. Yeah. So, what was the core motivation behind that? It was um, financial. Um, in as much as if you're playing a bookstore in Dallas, you can't really have two drummers, to be honest. It's just, that's a kind of fundamental, that's one of the rules I live by. So, um, you know, we were offered this American tour, a month long tour as a band. We did the budget and it was like, yep, yeah, dudes, you can do it. I've got this, I've got the visas and stuff. So it's like, dude, yeah, you can do it. 
and you're only going to lose 30 grand. So that's good. And I'm like, is there any way we can do it without me losing 30 grand? That would be good. And they're like, well, you can do it on your own. And I'm like, okay. And at first I was a bit like, I'd just come off a massive world tour with the band with two drummers and the bus and the trailer and the kind of like all the gubbins and monitors and every, you know, all the good stuff. Uh, but then I kind of thought, yeah, you know what, let's try it. Because there's a lot of places in America that I haven't played and a lot of places I don't get to go very often. Because maybe in the past I've been a little bit like, no, to see a Fink show you need the drums and the bass and the things and the sound guy and the bit of that. And actually, you know what? I wanted, I wanted to play Austin. I wanted to play Dallas. I wanted to play Atlanta. I wanted to play, I wanted to get off the beaten track a little bit and play in a lot of places, Nashville and sort of Memphis and Detroit and a lot of places I don't get to play with the band because we can't do a thousand tickets in Detroit. We can maybe do 150. So either you pay for that gig and you do it to build for the future, which we've done a lot in other places, or you um, you kind of suck it up and do it and do it and do a solo show. And luckily for me, I, I, I kind of retooled it to be a solo show. And once I got going, I loved it. I loved it. I mean, apart from the fact that you don't have to listen to your band go on about pizzas or what things they've seen on TV or whatever shit drives you nuts for a change, you also get to like cover your own music. So a track like Sort of Revolution, which is beats and bass and delays and pedals. You get to rearrange you it a bit. You have to rearrange everything. You have to completely relearn everything. And in doing so, I opened up my own catalogue to myself in a way which is like, oh God, now I actually love all these songs. In a way that, I love it when I do it with the band. It's wicked. But in a way that it's like, okay, in this part of the song, normally what would happen would be like the two drummers would have a drum off. Like the end of something like this is the thing. And now then there's no one here. So what are we going to do? What are you going to do? And it, as, it allowed me to be like a bit of a guitarist again and be kind of like, well, maybe I can do some fancy guitar stuff. I, w- I would have loved to, I would have loved to have seen that, you know, because you it was a good show. Man, I was, I was on fire. I, I had a really great show and it was like, it was just me and a t- me and a TM Coles. She was great. So she would drive the car because no one trusted me to drive it. I don't know why. I've driven around the whole world in every van known to man. But um, driving this, this Escalade, was, they, they considered it too much of a risk. And I'm like, how dare you, you know? I've driven U-Hauls. I feel like I've driven across Mongolian mountains and stuff in these vans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah they were yeah. like, no. So she drove the whole thing. And some of the mileage was a bit intense. But I had a, yeah. I had a really great tour. It's a, it's a big country. It's a different, well, you know when you're solo, it's a... On the one hand, you're completely free to do what you want and your set is your beast and you've got the kind of meat and two veg of your set and then you've got the, the, this is an option. Maybe if the gig's like this, I'll play that one. Maybe if it's more like that, I'll play this one. If they're sat down, I'll do this. If they're stood up, I'll do this. If if it's cold, I'll do this. If it's girls, I'll do this. There's loads of options. Um, but with a band, you're a bit more prescribed. You're kind of like, this is kind of the set. So... That's the thing. I mean, that's the difference between, yeah, that's the difference between working with 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 Justin and uh, and the solo stuff, of course, because we're working with a production and the same sound man every night and everything, and the cues are in place and everything's kind of on rails. Occasionally, we get a curveball, you know, like uh, just before the show or just before sound check. Hey, let's bring this back. In my shows, I'm the curveball. It's on rails, and it, until and you it, decide and until I start playing. And then it's like, and as I've said many times, if I, whatever I'm doing is right, (laughs) 
Hey man, I'm singing the song. If I've forgotten the chorus, then I plan to do that. Everybody wake up a bit. We'll, we'll get it on the next time round. Happens yeah. every night. And we're, we're flexible enough to be like, if we hit a sweet spot on a groove at the end of a track and it's awesome and you feel that conscious energy coming back from the crowd of like, oh, we love this bit, then I, because, because I can, I will then just walk away from the mic and look at my drummers and they will look at me go kind of like, what the hell is going on now? And I'm just like, this is amazing. Just do this. Yay. And, you know, you can have some magic moments like that for sure. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, what 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 was it like translating that mentality to working with the orchestra? Oh, it was amazing. The the orchestra record. I mean, that must have been a beast. I mean, it was such a beast. I've got a poster on my wall up there. There we go. Poster nice. of the show. Nice. Signed by the orchestra. For for any for, for anyone listening that hasn't heard it, go on Spotify or you know buy it or whatever it is. Your website. What is the website? I'll, I'll put it at the start of the show. Thinkworld um, something think or other. Thinkworld. Google it. Thinkworld or something or other. I'll I'll mention at the beginning and at the end as well. Um, yeah, that's. That's a sublime concert. The recording, the, this, the recording quality, but the arrangements, man, and the uh, the version of ye- the version of yesterday. Oh, I mean, and that's man, the one that man. got synced to the the Selma movie, which was a great one of my greatest honors in my life. Absolutely. Was that you were nominated for an Oscar? No, I wasn't. Was unfortunately, not because um, it wasn't an original piece. John Legend, who wrote Glory, which was the track that happened after mine, it was written for the movie. He got the Oscar, which is completely fair, and he deserved it. But um, okay. if okay. I'd written if I'd written that track for the movie, I would have maybe been nodded. I don't know. Um, There's time. Is there? I don't know if there is any. It's 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 kick ass, and everyone should check it out. Really, but I mean, the preparation. The orchestra record was so fucking different. Like. Um, my drummer described it as when you listen to music on a big stereo, it's like an MP3. When you're in front of a symphony orchestra, it's like an MP3000. And you go, and you're there and you're playing your song, and la, la, la. And then all of a sudden the strings come in and you can like literally like feel it pushing you forward. And then if, let's say the basses come in from over there. You're kind of like getting moved by these do 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 It's just amazing. And it was such a different live experience. It's not the same. It's a different world. Uh, two reasons, right? The first reason, um, the orchestra can rehearse without you, which is really weird. So we were like, um, okay, Monday the orchestra are going to rehearse. Tuesday you can show up and maybe do a run-through with the orchestra. And then we'll see you on Friday. And we're like, right. how can the orchestra rehearse without us? And they're like, well, it's all written down, dude. So, you know, they can yep. imagine it, I suppose. So it's so, like we were really babysat through this process because it's this once a year thing in Amsterdam with the Royal Orchestra, with the Royal Concertgebouw Orchestra. It's a full 120 piece symphony vibe. And we'd pro they'd done a few before and some had gone really well and some had been total train wrecks. So by the time I got to the Fink show, like it was the third time they'd done it. They're like, right, we, this is what we're going to do. You do three tracks. We'll do three tracks. We'll do like six collabs. So it's like nice. The orchestra gets like, you on your own, modern contemporary, and like these, you know, Berlin Sunrise with strings on it and so on. And and we were like, yeah, okay, sounds great. And um, so when we got there, all of the work had been done. We'd approved all the scores. We'd heard them all being done. It all sounded really, really great. But they said to us, you know that the orchestra is going to play what's written down. And it's very much like... Um, Tracks? No, it's very much like that show about the news, Ron Burgundy. Whatever's oh, right. written on the auto cue, he's going to say it. 
He's got, <laughs> you know, and so um, same with an orchestra. Whatever's written on the paper, they're going to play it. So if you miss your chorus like you do every night uh, on Berlin Sunrise because you've forgotten the words, they're yeah. going to play yeah. it your and problem. you're screwed because <laughs> you can't just go three, four now because they're already on to the next bit. So do not deviate from the plan. And the problem yeah. with that is when you're in the middle of a tour, whatever you've planned, you've kind of grown over the past three weeks of gigs. And now you're not quite sure how Berlin Sunrise originally went because last night in Bremen, we played it completely differently. So it was a bit stressful for all of us to literally just play the damn song exactly like this. And the second thing was when an orchestra is giving you this emotional kind of whoosh, anyone with a heart and soul, you feel that emotion. But you've also got to play the song. So if you're singing a song and all of a sudden the chorus comes in and you just want to cry your eyes out because it's so beautiful, you actually can't because you're singing the song. So you have to really grip yourself tight to get through the, to get through the song. You can't have too, too much fun, let too much in. I couldn't it's, it's... really have any fun and I don't remember anything about that show. Not, not a right. moment on that stage. I remember walking back from the show with my wife um, with all these new rules that I'd never experienced before. Rules like um, the, the, you know, the orchestra has to take a break every X amount of hours and the rehearsals last from this to this. And um, there was a load of hierarchy in the mix and some of the orchestra were really into the idea. Some of the orchestra thought this was way below their their pay grade, you know, to do some, you know, A minor to C stuff. We should be playing, you know, Mozart right now. And it's like, fair enough, there are A minors in Mozart. <laughs> you know, fair enough too. And we were kind of pointed out by our handlers, you know, these guys are really into it. Those guys are not so much into it. You know, just work your way around these politics here. But man, it was just, it was really, really that, epic. That many we, people, we knew it as a band. How often in your life are you going to get to do this? And the answer's probably like once. Maybe twice if you're really, really lucky, but playing with a full symphony orchestra is, is not, a, not a common thing. So, yeah. and the reason it sounds so good is that these orchestras, you know, they, they've, they, they, they've, got, they've got money. They're moneyed up to the eyeballs. So they've got microphones hanging down from the ceiling and they've got their own mixing board up in the, up in the thing. They've got all these cameras everywhere. They've got live camera edit suite up there as well. And... So we did two sounds. We had the orchestra sounds, which was done by their guy. And then we had our sound guy, Rob, out front of house. So Rob did us and the orchestra guy mm -hmm. did the orchestra. And then, and on the night, it's all about the sound of the venue. But then afterwards, those guys got together and went, all right, here's my stuff. Okay, here's my stuff. Let's try and make it work. Yeah. Because, I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm glad it seemed... Uh, that's relatively straightforward then from a mixing point of view from what you're saying i mean i've spoken <laughs> right, to friends separation, who, so it's not really that straightforward you know there's well but i mean i've spoken to friends who have worked with orchestras and they've had to you know cover up so much of the work with with samples almost you know and, and, and retrack a lot of the parts because of tuning issues you know things like this that they wanted to eliminate and some stuff there was i won't name the guy or the place but um a pretty well-known um sort of regularly collaborative orchestra that, that works with a lot of rock bands was was supposedly quite hard in the mixing department and a lot of it had to kind of be axed you know um just with that that many moving parts um it's got to be all right on the night yeah it has to be right on the night and to be honest on the live on the record we we released after that show um we got to cut 
two and they got to cut two. There were oh, two, okay. the, two that I did that I was like, I didn't like. Which ones? What tracks? Um, if you don't mind. Um, uh, Walking in the Sun. It sounded too Disney with the orchestra. And maybe If Only, I don't remember. Another a ballad, which sounded too, too Disney. So this was... They cut two of their solo pieces because they just weren't up to the standard of their reputation or something. It's the same reason that I cut mine. You know, it's just, it just sounds different when it's, from, when it's a classical music guy. Going, well, I'm afraid it's not up to the standard of our orchestra. And you're like, yeah, that's why I cut Walking in the Sun. It's not up to the standard of my band. <laughs> um, it was one of those experiences where I learned a lot. And mainly because um, after we did this gig with this orchestra, it's a big thing, amazing thing, it's a beautiful thing. And God, it's just a life-changing experience. I walked back to the hotel with, with Samar um, with a bunch of flowers, uh, cause you get flowers and stuff. And it was just like, wow, this is amazing. And then the next day we played in like, uh, you know, Mannerheim or something in some spit and sawdust, sweaty punk club, um, in the middle of a heat wave. And, uh, and it wasn't very glamorous, put it that way. We rock up in the splitter van and we load in and we're like, this is rather different from last night, isn't it? So I was like, Okay, well, you know what? I'm going to stand up. I need to learn how to play standing up. It's as simple as that. This sitting down stuff is done. You know, it, it's, I don't feel I can really do my songs that much justice. So um, that night I got the, my, our tour manager, Ollie, at that point to get me uh, some clothesline and he rigged, up, rigged it up on the Martin like a guitar strap and I did the gig standing up. And as you know, it's a very different skill set. Sitting down, yeah, you got all this control. It's like, oh man, I can do fucking anything. And then standing up, you're like, okay, my hand actually doesn't do that, or that chord dude, is now dude, impossibly you, you, difficult. You, you know what? I I don't play sitting down. I hate it. I, I I transitioned to standing up because I was just getting a lot of pain. You know that you know in the back of the shoulder. Ability and- standing up, but you lose a bit of skill standing up. But then again, one of the like greatest guitar gigs I ever saw, Pierre Ben Susan, a, a mentor to both of us in, in different ways. You know, yeah, the king. He, I, I saw king. <laughs> the king. <laughs> uh, Everyone's the king. He, he's good. He's a, he's a good guitarist. There's no question. Um, <laughs> he um, he um, he sat down, and his show was like amazing. Like it was just astonishing. It really was. And but but he's, he sat down. So you're focused in on the guitar. It's, it's, it's just that, you know what I mean? And that's what you get. And I thought to myself, you know, you can, you need to be more fluid on stage, especially if you're trying to carry a band. Oh yeah. I love playing standing up for the, for the, for the fun, you know, the show and also dancing around pedals and jumping into the audience and, you know, nonsense, stuff like that. You can't really, I I can't believe uh, you do what you do and move. I mean, I understand you can occasionally flick your wig around. I get that. But you're actually moving while doing, like, you know, some kind of circus trick. It's ridiculous. I don't know how you do it. It's a circus trick. It's all tracks. <laughs> like, it's so awesome to see you do what you do. And when I have to try and explain it to people, they just don't get it. When you say, yeah, Mike, Mike Dorsey's like this kind of tap upgrade type finger finger style kind of new wave type situation they just don't know what i'm talking about and it's well, like well it's it's yeah it's it's a style that hasn't permeated the mainstream so much just yet i mean it's pretty niche being in being a solo oh, yeah. instrumental guitarist but the fact is 
that you, your unique element, I think, is your journey, is the fact that you, you've got this rock, you've got this kind of, I'm gonna, I was going to say hair rock, but I think that's a cheap, cheap, cheap jab. You've got this kind of rock metal background like everybody has, and um, you bring some of that rock nerdy energy into the mix, and it's just like the percussion and the, and the, and the, and the style and the, it rec- not every acoustic guitar gig needs to be mellow there are going to be peaks and troughs and aggression and niceness and i love all that about your style man it, it blows well, me away. well i appreciate it i appreciate it i mean well that's the thing you, you play your influences to an extent always and you know my influences come from that rock metal but also pierre ben susan and, and and folk music and things like that and and pop and rock but um but um yeah, and and the Tonewood Amp thing as well, which I must I must mention. You met those guys. I met those guys talking. and they were lovely. They took me to Starbucks and we had because um, I because I, I, on the on that last American tour, you know, I, I, I'm a, I'm a bit of a straight arrow these days, so they wanted to go for a drink, yeah. and I'm like, great, I'll have a green tea. Where can we go? So we went to Starbucks <laughs> and they kicked us out. They were lovely, lovely guys. Tonewood Amp is like a it's a really, 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 really clever idea, and and everybody that I've played it to in my studio has immediately wanted to have one in their life. It's just so cool. It's, it's a weird, it's a, it's a weird thing. But I, yeah, I, I didn't know. Were you using that on the solo tour? No, or did it was you before meet? before the mix because you've got to like. I was a bit you got to paranoid about it because also my mum couldn't send it to me because I had a magnet in it. So I got Tonewood oh, to send it right. to my mum and dad in Cornwall, and then so I said to mum and dad, "Oh, great, send it to me in Berlin because post here is a bit random." And they went to the post office and they were like, oh, what's in here? And they're like, well, it's, it's a magnet. And they're like, oh, we can't send that. So my yeah. mum, I was like, why? And they're like, well, there's over a certain amount of magnetons you can't use the postal service for. So it took a while for me to get it. My mum eventually just went to a different post office and just, just did it. But um, what I didn't know is you can just like, you can just like take it off. And I kind of thought it was going to be like some kind of massive permanent addition to my guitar and I'd have to drill holes in but you don't. It's just magnets. No, it's, no, it's all good. Any opportunity to give love to those guys, uh, I'll take, man, because it's certainly changed my world. But uh, do you I use do, it other than uh, the, the second. Do you use it on your live guitar? Uh, no, but I do. Sometimes I do a track where I'll unplug and walk around the room if the room's small enough. So I stick it on and, and play like some prints or some something and just wander around <laughs> and then people are getting it in their faces. What stuff, prints you know? songs just, you do? Uh, I was doing Purple Rain for a while, oh, just, just like, like a, just like a strummy oh, version. So you know, I did it. I, I actually did it in um, in Germany with Tommy. We were in some spa hotel venue. It was like a sick venue, but it was attached through a series of tunnels to a spa. Okay. So I was I did my opening set, and I, I I did that there because it was one of those. I guess it was tiled or whatever. I don't know. There was some some reason I was like I have to use the Tonewood and unplug in this room, right? And 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 of the size. And I remember I played my set. And then just quickly packed up my gear on the side of the stage, ran to my room, jumped in the swimming pool, jumped in the sauna <laughs> while Tommy was playing, ran back with wet hair and jumped on and joined Tommy for <laughs> with my wet hair. And everyone was like, what? What's that going on? So but, awesome. but dude, because time is running away with us, it's been such a pleasure to chat to you. But I must, I must, I must ask, like, what do you have going on now? Because we haven't even touched on, you know, Hard Believer, which came out after this whole orchestra thing, right? In the process. That, last time I spoke to you, you said that was like... That was a big game changer. That one, it, you, it right? took us up to the next. Uh, it took us up to the next level. Perfect Darkness, the fourth album, was very woody and very acoustic, and it definitely opened a lot of doors for us, especially America. 
And then Hard Believer, we went a bit more pop rock, a bit more alt indie with our folk vibes and um some big syncs on that, right? Look, looking too closely, I was looking up Spotify and it's just like pfft, the king of streaming. Um, Pilgrim was a big track on that. Hard Believer was a big track for us on American radio. And just like, um, just the, the ambition of that record, it was obvious that we weren't going to do, we weren't just going to, we weren't just going to disappear. We were, we were actually trying to progress and elevate and change. At, 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 like, um, you know, we all love bands who make the same record over and over again, and we really love the first one, so please don't change, right? But then we we, do, we just don't want to be that band because all the bands we love, they do. They keep the DNA of what's really good about them, but then they change. And some records you're not going to like, and some records you're going to think are amazing, and you might fall off for a couple of records and come back. And we want to be that band. We want to keep doing different stuff. So yeah, Hard Believer was a kind of game changer because we it was our kind of – LA alt indie we did it at Sound City and we nailed it and we did it in like 12 days and got we captured it whatever it was we got it yeah um it's a great vibe that 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 album is a great vibe and and that I think that came out as I was sort of probably like graduating uni I was that kind of age right and so all, old. The, all the Dude, dude all, the, all the cool kids were into that nice. record all the cool kids yeah, yeah, it, was, yeah, yeah. it was it was it was relevant it, dude, it was great. And, and I mean, you look at the numbers as well. It's amazing. And then you've got two more amazing records after that. All these other side stuff, the blues yeah, record. Yeah, like yeah. You, like you, you've clearly got the the, the creative bug and, and just transition, like we talked about earlier, from the electronic world into sort of pretty bare bones, stripped back acoustic kind of stuff. And then to go yeah, through. Yeah, the thing is, you know, I'm in a band, but I'm not trapped by my band. Right. So I love That's Fink nice and I love what Fink does, but I really want to do a blues album and I didn't want to make the next Fink album a blues album because right. Tim and Guy aren't really big, big time into the blues and that would really suck for them. So I did a side album, which was quite confusing for everybody, but hey, fair enough, I really loved it. And then I moved to Berlin and I did a kind of electronic reinterpretation of Hard Believer called Horizontalism, which is all like minimal dronescapes of, of Hard yeah. Believer. I confused everybody even more because they're like, this yeah. is a new direction. And I'm like, the track names are the same as this album, for God's sake. You know, it's not a new album. Anyway. And then I did Resurgam with Flood, who's a legend and changed my world completely. A sonic mentor for me. And then the latest album we did, Bloom Innocent with Flood, was just the most beautiful experience. And I think it's, I think it's my, I'm bound to say this, but I think it's my favorite Fink album because it's so just it's real gorgeous. and nice and beautiful. And, and I got no agenda and I wasn't thinking about anything other than just like, I want to make a beautiful record that I love, so let's just do that. Yeah, man. No, it's great, and, and that that last that last track, especially um, that last track. Oh man, and that that piano. It sounds like it's been through a lot. It that was piano. Russian. You know that it's gone now, but um, I, I I bought that piano, and then I got a piano tuner to come in who tunes the grand piano in the venue in this in this complex. And he came in, and he refused to tune it, and was very angry. I don't speak Russian, but um, it was along the lines of, "How dare you make me touch this piece of crap?" And but um, that track in particular was one of those moments that I'm sure we've all had people listening in 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 at, in at home and stuff. That you know, when you do a track at home for the first time, it's amazing. If only you'd recorded it, but you didn't. But that moment was everything, and now it's gone. And that track was recorded with that in mind as in that day i'm like okay I'll do, maybe i'll do a quick phone recording and i'll remember it for tomorrow no because i can't play piano at all it's, that's blindingly obvious so i'm just i'm gonna do it now while i'm emotionally in this moment and it's just pouring it i it's taking me ages to learn how to play it live because i thought i just can't go there every night but 
Um, I'm a professional. I rise above it. Um, but yeah, the, the, the Bloom Innocent, and then I did an acoustic version of that record to say, these are the songs with the whole flood, strings, drummers, oof. And then the songs can also exist in this naked form. You might get a kick out of it. And then I did a recently, a couple of months ago, came out um, Horizontalism Sessions, which is all the whole record without me on it. So I just basically right. took my bits and I just muted vocals, muted guitars, and then worked with all of these beautiful parts for my collaborators. And it's just like a beautiful, semi-classical, acoustic, wonderful moment. And it's really beautiful. So I put two albums yeah, it's, it's great. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really great. And it's an amazing body of work and also a testament to what you can achieve when you're willing to kind of work outside of the kind of box that you're, you're in or that each record's in, you know, coming from a totally different background. And also you said that you were 31, was it, when you went and became a singer-songwriter? Uh, well, I wrote my first song at 33. Right. So I'm 31 now, right? So anyone, anyone yeah, listening who is... For. Right. So, yeah. So, well, that's what I'm saying. Anyone that's listening, and I do think about this a lot, you know, as someone who creates things... Uh, and especially during this lockdown and this this COVID stuff that's been going on, sometimes it's just been really hard to pick up the same instrument and create something in that same style. Because for whatever reason, you know, some people are thriving in this environment, but there's there's days where I just, you know, when this started, I didn't touch a guitar for two months. I just put it down, man. It was just well, like just, just, I had just the opposite experience because everybody was like, "Finn's not on tour now, so can you do a session? Can you do this? Can you do an online gig?" It, all of a sudden, it was like everything right. being acoustic was like a real pain in, pain in my ass but I, I have a, I tend to write my songs in these bursts I get myself in this mood and I'm like it's song time and then when I'm spent I'm spent hopefully there's an album yeah. at the end of it but if there isn't then you're gonna have to wait for me to recharge that battery it's a different kind of battery and over the That's past sort of three four months I've been in production mode I've been producing other people um so okay. I'm in kind of their mode or that record mode or their vibe mode and my way of getting over that, of going, oh, great, you know, dadgad, nylon, guitar, sing a song, ugh, yearning and loss, I get it, actually was to get a piano. And then and the, now I write everything on the piano, pretty much, because it's like I'll play an A minor to C to G combo, and I, I won't know that it's A minor or C or G. I'll just be like, oh, my God, that sounds amazing. I'm going write a song of this. But if you pick up the guitar and you do that, you'd be like, lame done that right. right well that's and that's that's another reason why i like to play with a lot of different tunings because you can be playing the same kind of stuff but it just totally changes where you go with it you know and just yeah, changes how you look the at tunings it. you gave me completely screwed my title track on my last record like my last record was going to be called um hope before dawn that sounds like a <laughs> sounds like an episode of game of thrones i know but it was going to be called Hope Before Dawn, and I was writing this song, and then you came over, and you gave me this, this wonky, Dawesian tuning, which is Dawesian, wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> and then I was just caught in this trap of, like, how do I use this tuning to get my song out? And I couldn't. I, I battered this song, like, 20 different versions and never made oh, it to the man. end oh, man. because of you. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Fink fans. I've ruined a potential jewel of the discography. I recycled it actually recently, but um, for something else. But um, you also recycled it for something quite cool. I remember one of our jams from that sesh. Oh, dude, I, mean, I just like, taught oh, it. Do you, do you mind if I use it for something else? And I'm like, not at all, as long as you give me all the money. I, I just so there were some riffs there, or like a little pattern or something, like which, a really cute pattern. Yeah, I did. I did it with. Um, 
Uh, the aforementioned Cenk Erdogan from Turkey, it's fretless guitar player, no relation to the Erdogan in charge of Turkey, a different Erdogan. Um, and we did the International Guitar Night Tour, which is like, it was 33 shows at the start of this year through the US and Canada, minus 39 degrees in Fairbanks, Alaska in January. Like, you know, I was there complaining about my 5am lobby calls, whereas now I look back on it just thinking, take me Oh, I know. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we, we wrote a tune with it uh, in Nashville and we toured it on that, on that set. So yeah, a whole bunch of... Uh, PPL registrations that you'd kindly put me down 50% of that. So thanks for that. <laughs> I mean, I remember this one tour I went on one time, especially in America. These are the kind of things which are really freaky that, that it's really difficult to explain. And that is, okay, you're on tour. All you've got is hand luggage. You're playing Montreal. It's going to be minus 10. You're playing South by Southwest. It's going to be 95. You have one bag. Go. Humidifax. So it's like, okay, what am I going to like ditch my jacket when I leave Montreal? Or, or how, do I, how do I do this? It turns out I was freezing in Montreal and boiling in South by Southwest, but... I, I I did that. I got a ski jacket, um, and I bought my I bought my thermal my thermal like leg stuff and things for Alaska because that tour it was we were doing Montana as well. Canada, and Canada, Canada. Such, Montana January, is such a beautiful part of the world. It's astonishing. Dude, Mon- it's amazing. Montana is one of the. I was considering moving to Montana. Honestly, I mean, we hit we hit the. You know all the spots. You know Bozeman, Big I Sky. I love Bozeman. Helena. I don't like what it smells like, but I love that. I love. I love Bozeman. Is amazing. You drive the you're high in, street. You're in like yeah. paradise. Like some it's kind amazing. of it's amazing. One of the best places. Paradise of mountains and valleys and 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 men in dungarees and and cabins and oh yeah. my god, this is heaven. I could move here immediately. And then you, I remember I, we approached Bozeman at night. So you're going through this thing, nice. like watching out for moose and deer and whatever, and you go over this horizon, and then it's just kind of like a moonscape of just kind of like mining and oil and the smell of the oil, and you're like, <gasps> it's one of the greatest I, I, moments I, I, I of my time. I love it, man. I mean, we did, we did, uh, white, yeah, whitefish as well, or all these places that I can't even remember. Actually, there's like an real, amazing real... Um, guitar, like amp, like experimentalist in Bozeman called Minor Glitch. You should check his stuff. He makes pedals. He makes little oh, yeah. amps. Yeah, Minor Glitch, man. He's got, he makes some great stuff. And, first, uh, first time I ever, I, first time I ever shot a gun was in Bozeman. I think I saw Luffy, the video of you doing that and you there. got rather too much pleasure out of it. Uh, it depends which video. There was another video when I was in Las Vegas and there was an explosion. That's the one I've seen. Yeah, that was Vegas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Vegas, the Demazios. The Demazios. Demazio pickups. They're based in Bozeman of all places. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, they got a sick studio. Larry Demazio is really into photography, so he's got a photo studio there. So all the guys, like you know, your John Petrucci's and your Steve Vai's, they all swing by and do the uh, do the shoots there. It's like this secret guitar mecca. I saw it's, this it's thing on Steve Vai online somewhere like months ago, where he was just describing the, some of his guitars in this room of guitars in the Hall of Vai. Oh yeah, his um, harmony hut. I think he calls it. <sighs> did Did you play? Did you play in Bozeman then? Did you? No, do the it, was a, it was a stopover. We were, we must have been going Minneapolis to Vancouver. We must have been doing the run. It's a seventeen hour right. run, and uh, you either go across the Dakotas or you kind of carve through Montana. I can't remember now, but it's one of those. But well, well, you either stay in Reading or Bozeman at the two halfway points, and we stopped in Reading on one other tour, and uh, there was like nothing open, so we went to this bowling alley to have a beer you know and like it was like it was like a you know the thing about touring america is like it's like a movie you're having the same crap tour that you'd have in the uk but like (laughs) saying bozeman montana is different than saying hull or i'm saying in cardiff tomorrow but you know it's the same stuff but it just sounds like a movie and 
Uh, just uh, American tours are the stuff that like real memories are made of. You really earn your stripes on those tours. You, you get being being, a, being able to have the privilege to do a bus tour in the states is just it's like almost famous, isn't it? That that movie. It's 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 you know you almost want a revolver to shoot the sign of the city as you no come down. You know? It's amazing, dude. Yeah, dude, we're done, right? Time's over. No, I was I was just gonna say like so good to catch up with you, man. And before before we before we stop. I'm going to throw it over to you because a lot of the people listening to this will be musicians. And for someone that's had such a, a long career in all these different avenues, doing all these different things, is if, it, if you could boil it down to one single piece of, one single word of wisdom uh. or fra- phrase of wisdom, piece of advice to anybody, say they're trying to get out of the, they, they're using the COVID time to maybe build their repertoire and they don't know where to go next. Like what's that next step from, from writing their own stuff to, How much time to, getting, to getting out there? Because I do this, I teach and everything. I've got this, I've got this nailed. I can do this. How much time have I got? Well, I tell you what. Let's 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 boil it down to a specific type of person. Someone who has a body of work, but they're looking to, you know, uh, let's say they're looking to tour efficiently. Like let, let's say they're looking to get out there after COVID with a touring I've got to strategy. Stop you right there, because there is no touring. So I'm being hopeful. That's why I'm saying it. Go get a job. <laughs> come back in 2022. Uh, you well, know, well, 2022. Exactly. Go buy a better pedal board. Come back in 22. But the truth is. It all starts with the music. If the music isn't good enough, then nothing else will follow. And if you, if you spend 10 years on the music and one year on tour, you'll, you'll do better than if you spent one year on the music and nine years on tour. It's like sometimes it takes ages. And my producer, Flood, who's a, who's a sonic genius, he's produced Nick Cave and PJ Harvey and U2 and Depeche Mode. And you know what? He, the guy's done it. He's like, it's finished when it's awesome. And that deadlines are just a suggestion. And nobody knows when Dark Side of the Moon came out or whether it was a month late or two weeks late or a year late. Nobody cares. The album is amazing. So it's finished when it's awesome. So really the only unique thing in your studio is you. Every other piece of kit you've got, everybody else has got. Every plugin you've got, everybody else has got. The only unique piece of kit is you. So the more you in the mix the more you'll stand out as an artist. And if you suck, then uh, maybe you're not supposed to work be the on, guy on the on stage. That. Whatever, it doesn't matter. Not everybody can be like the guy at the front of the stage. But um, if you are projecting yourself as much as possible through your music, it's got to be passion over skill every time. And once you get the passion over skill, you can bring in the skill, but you can't bring in the passion if you don't have it. So passion over skill and then bring in the skill later but you know it starts with the music and you you start your career essentially photocopying your idols and your first album and your first excursion will be like i want to play like mike Dawes, i want to play like fink or whatever it is but then your second body of work will be you so it's like just try and squeeze as much of, of you as you can into your material and it's got to be passionate that's the thing. I always get the same the, uh, the same question from a lot of people is how do I get my own sound? You know, because they'll listen to their favorite artists, say, I can always tell when that's you playing. I can always tell when it's Andy McKee, Tommy sure. Emmanuel, you know, Finn, whatever. But, you know, you get you get your own sound for being you, you know. You, you might not be aware of it, but everyone else is, you know. And if, if, if you love what you're doing. There's a reason why musicians are sometimes a little bit difficult to get on with. You know, they say girls only date musicians. They only date one musician in their life. They either marry them or they never date another one. 
Um, I hope your hope yours isn't listening right now. Um, so, um, because we can be quite difficult, because some of that journey of learning who the hell you are for your music, not for any other reason, just so that you can do, a, just because it's like, why is Jimi Hendrix amazing, you know, and I'm not. It's not the guitar, it's not the amp, it's not the plug-in, it's not the pedal, it's not the jacket, it's not the haircut, it's not the drugs, it's the passion, you know, and the journey to find your own passion can be really difficult, especially if you're from a Western culture where we are like straight jacketed up culturally from birth. You know, men are not supposed to express themselves. Boys don't cry. You know, women aren't supposed to be opinionated. So why don't you just be quiet over there, dear, let the men talk and stuff like this. And it's difficult for an English man or a it's different with Mediterraneans, you know, they're just, they're just so passionate. Of course, that's where flamenco's from. Are you kidding me? It's like they can, like, they love this expression. They love life. But some of us are a bit more tightly packed. And unpacking that and loosening your shoulders and being you is a whole journey in itself, isn't it? And it's great to be able to do it with a guitar. Totally. And, and also, for anyone listening, don't be deterred by by the, the the world we're in right now where everyone's first attempt at something is 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 public True you, that, know, could, you know could, could you could you imagine you know e- everyone's first gig sucks everyone's first tunes i actually suck. forgot how to tune my guitar on my first gig and a member of the audience had to tell me that it was ea whatever it is e-a-d-g-d-e <laughs> right? whatever, whatever I didn't know. and i was like uh and i was so stressed out that i forgot it was g and someone went it's g I mean, fantastic, my fantastic. first gig, my first gig with the band was actually live on XFM radio with the bosses of the label watching. So it was a bit, really a bit intense, but, um, it's okay. Your learning curve is going to be out there in this modern culture. That's okay. But, um, you know, um, if, as long as you're being completely honest with yourself, no one can ever criticize you for anything that you're doing. And mm-hmm. as long as you're comfortable with that, then um, the arts is a really beautiful place to express yourself, you know, no matter how you do it. But you know yourself, you know, some of the pieces of work that you perform, you didn't just wake up that day and go, I'm Mike Dawes, I'm a genius, check this out. You actually spent like four weeks bothering to work out how do I finger tap my way through this piece. It didn't happen when you woke up in the morning in between watching the telly and you, you, you've, got, you've got to you've got to love it you've got to be in love if, if you're not doing if, if you're not doing if you're doing something and you don't love it it's never gonna hit the same way as the next guy who absolutely is in love with what he's doing and, and following that so I mean, you know this this helps you deal with not succeeding and i include myself in that in that regard you know I've got some wall jewelry up there. It's not to remind me of how well I'm doing. It's to remind me of how badly I'm doing. Because why isn't, why is that silver and not platinum? Why is that not my record? Why is that double, double platinum? Why isn't that diamond? It's like, you know, it's not for me to, I, I, success is completely relative, right? And it's like, it's to remind, it's just to remind me, you know, you could do better. And also don't care. Try not to care what anybody thinks. And then your music gets really good. That's another thing, exactly, and, and and it's always a mountain, isn't it? There's always another rung on the ladder that when you get to it, you're still looking at. But if you're secure and, and and passionate about what it is that you're doing, then you're never going to fail at that. So, so Finn Greenall, the man, the coolest man in My show business, source, the hardest working fret fret master in the realm of acoustic. <laughs> it's been a pleasure, man. I, I I wish you all the best, and I hope that the uh, hope that we can see a Fink tour either solo oh, or with the I band. Can't wait or- to see your new house, and love to your parents as well. 
Totally. Same to yours, my All friend. Right, take-, uh, take care. I'm going to end this recording right now, and I'll see you on the other see side. Later, take care. Think. Bye. Bye-bye. Hey guys, thanks so much for checking out this week's episode of the podcast. For more information about this week's guest, head to the link in the description where you will also find more information about the Tonewood amp as well as that cheeky little discount you can get as well. Lots of love. See you next time.